Wordplay, Theater for the Ear and the Imagination, presents The Atheist Mass, a short audio play based on the story by French author Honoré de Balzac. Written in 1836, it is the tale of the unlikely connection between an atheist and the Catholic Mass, and what happens when bitterness and cynicism encounter great faith and charity. In our production, Kevin Sullivan plays Dr. Pierre de Plain, and Michael Joseph takes the role of Horace Vieschon. Father Matthew Powell directed the production and dramatized the story for audio. I, Horace Biachon, studied medicine in Paris under the great surgeon, Dr. Pierre de Plain, acknowledged even by his detractors as an extraordinary physician and surgeon. He had an almost godlike eye. It was said he could determine the cause and the cure of a malady almost immediately. But if Dr. de Plain had a godlike eye, there was nothing of the divine in him, for he was an atheist. Perhaps his genius and pride impeded him from religious belief. Who can say? But the doctor had no doubts. He was positive. I, Dr. Pierre de Plain, am a man accustomed from my youth to dissect the human body, before, during, and after death. And I have hunted through his organs without ever finding the soul so necessary to religious belief. He confirmed his atheism by this fact. The life of this man, great surgeon that he was, was marred by arrogance and bad temper. Envious people and fools, having no knowledge of their determinations by which we superior spirits are moved, seize at once on superficial inconsistencies to formulate accusations and so pass sentence on them. In our day, for instance, Napoleon was condemned by our contemporaries when he spread his eagle's wings. It was a great honor for me, Horace Biachon, an intern, to be Dr. Duplain's assistant. It was a rare opportunity to learn surgery from the best physician in Paris. I put up with his melancholy, cynicism, and bad temper because I so admired his genius and skill. One day, as I passed the church of Saint-Sulpice, I caught sight of Dr. Duplain going into the church at about nine in the morning. Duplain slipped into the church door as if he were stealing into some house of ill repute. Knowing his strong opinions about religion, I stole into the church also and was not a little astonished to see the atheist, the audacious scoffer at religion, kneeling humbly. And where? In the Lady Chapel, where he remained throughout the Mass. Astonished beyond measure, I said to myself, he certainly has not come here to clear up the question of the virgin birth. Now, as it happened, Dr. Duplain invited me to have dinner with him that evening. At dessert, I skillfully moved the conversation around to the Catholic Mass. Yes, my dear doctor, the Catholic Mass is surely so much mummery and farce. Yes, be Sean, a farce which has cost the world more blood than all Napoleon's battles and the doctor's leeches. The Mass is a papal invention, not older than the 6th century. What floods of blood were shed to establish the Feast of Corpus Christi? 
the institution by which Rome established her triumph in the question of the real presence. But where is the worshipper I saw this morning, I thought. Three months went by. I made no attempt to bring up the matter of Dr. Duplain's mass attendance, though it remained stamped on my memory. One day, however, after I had seen the great surgeon go into the church again, I dared to ask him, My dear doctor, what were you doing in the church of Saint Sulpice this morning? Well, you see, I, uh, I went to see a priest who has a diseased knee bone and uh, uh, to whom the Duchess of Angoulême did me the honor to recommend me. So, he goes to see damaged knees, I said to myself. Another three months later, at said day and hour, I saw Dr. Duplain creep along the wall of the Church of Saint Sulpice as if he were a burglar. Once again, he entered the Lady Chapel to attend Mass. The mystery was greater than ever. The regularity of the phenomenon complicated the matter. After Duplain left the church, I went to the sacristan and discovered to my amazement that Dr. Duplain had scheduled the masses and provided the stipends, a mass established and funded by the great atheist. A year elapsed before I found an opportunity of speaking to Dr. Duplain about the unusual but regular occurrence in his life. This time, I not only followed the great atheist into the chapel, but I went up and knelt right beside him. Duplain, however, showed not the slightest notice or demonstration of surprise. Instead, he gave his full attention to the Mass, kneeling and crossing himself at the proper times. After Mass, I could not help but ask, Will you please tell me, dear doctor, the reason for your flights of monkishness? I have caught you several times going to Mass. You! You who are so hostile to religion, please clear up this mystery for me. Please explain such a flagrant disconnect between your opinions and your conduct. You do not believe in God. You ridicule the doctrine of the real presence, and yet you attend Mass. My dear doctor, I beg you to give me an answer. Oh, be a Sean. Human beings are filled with disconnects, inconsistencies, and contradictions. All that has nothing to do with my question. I want to know the reason for what you have been doing for so long and why you established and funded that Mass. So you know about that, too? Yes, Doctor, I do. You ask me why I sometimes go to Mass. The answer, my dear boy, is faith, but not mine. Someone else's. I am near to the grave, so I may safely tell you about it. Please do, Doctor. Please do. We walked another block or so in silence, and then made a left turn. Beashon, do you see the sixth floor of that building? The greenish one, the one where the clothesline is hanging with the wash. The one where the ground floor is occupied by a used furniture dealer? Yes, that's the one. I lived up there in the garret for two years. I know the building, Doctor. A fellow medical student used to live there. A terrible place. We used to call it the pickle jar. The mass I have just attended is connected with some events which took place there at that time I lived in the attic, the pickle jar. You see, my early life was hard, Beashan. I have endured everything. Hunger and thirst... Want of money, want of clothes, of shoes, of blankets, every cruelty that poverty can inflict. 
I have blown up my frozen fingers in that pickle jar. When I was trying to become a physician, I was alone, with no one to help me, no money to buy books or to pay the expenses of my medical training. I had no friends. My irascible, touchy, and quick temper worked against me, I suppose. I had no idea, doctor. But I can sympathize. I, too, grew up in poverty, so I know how awful it was for you. Yes, it was, my dear boy. That is why later in life, when I have met people born to wealth who have never wanted for anything, I think to myself, why did I get into debt, suffer hardships, sacrifice everything to heal these people, people who don't deserve to be healed? I should like to see one of these rich men who complain that I charge too much for an operation. I should like to see him alone in Paris, without a sou, without a friend, without credit, forced to work just to exist. What would he do? What would he do to satisfy his hunger? That explains a lot to me, doctor. I am beginning to understand the reasons for your... temperament. Forgive me. I have judged you unfairly. Be you, Sean. If you have sometimes found me hard and bitter, it was because I was comparing my early sufferings to the insensibilities, selfishness, and callousness I have seen thousands of times in the highest circles. I was thinking of the obstacles which hatred, envy, jealousy, and calumny put between me and my success in medicine. You see, my dear fellow, if I do not believe in God, it is because I do not believe in man. Hmm. I never thought of it that way, doctor. Yes. Yes, I, I suppose if one cannot believe in his fellow man, it is difficult to believe in the so-called creator of his fellow man. Exactly. Anyway, one night I returned home to my garret. In that very moment, I met my fellow lodger, Louis Venard. We knew each other only as fellow lodgers in the same dingy rooming house. Paul Venard sadly informed me that we had both been evicted for unpaid back rent. The landlord threatened to call the gendarme if we were not out by the morning. As you may imagine, I spent the most miserable night. Where was I to go? The next morning, as I was dejectedly eating my meager bowl of bread soaked in milk, Venard came into my room. Since neither of us had family and little money, he suggested we find lodgings together and share the expenses. His offer was like an oasis in the desert for me. We were able to find two small attic rooms for only sixty francs a year. How very fortunate for you. It sounds like a perfect arrangement. So there we were, housed my humble friend and I. Then a most remarkable thing happened. On learning of my fervent desire to be a physician and surgeon and the many obstacles in my way, Fernard forgot his own ambitions and devoted himself and his money from his menial jobs to my medical training. How extraordinary! Yes, extraordinary. He gave me money for my medical fees. That man, my friend, understood that I had a mission. So he thought his mission was to support my mission. 
It was his indirect way of helping the sick, he said. He thought it gave purpose to his life, which before his life had not. He looked after me. He gave me money to buy medical books and took care to see that I had abundant food. Now I was able to devote myself fully to the study of medicine. What incredible generosity! I've never heard the like of it. Why would anyone do such a thing? I think he was motivated by his religious faith. The love of God and that sort of thing? Yes, that sort of thing. Also, the poor man's heart was big with affection, seeking an object. He had never been loved, he said, except by a poodle that had died some time before. A poodle? You mean a poodle dog? Yes, a dog. He would talk to me about it, asking whether I thought the church would allow masses to be said for the repose of its soul. His dog, he said, had been a good Christian, who for twelve years had accompanied him to church, never barking, listening to the organ music, and crouching beside him in a way that made it seem like he were praying too. How curious. He sounds like a strange man. Let us say, an unusual man. When I was appointed a surgeon at the hospital, I left this good fellow. If you look up my doctoral thesis, you will see that I dedicated it to him, since he had such a great part of my becoming a physician. I read your thesis, doctor, but I regret that I didn't notice the dedication. Venard insisted on buying my case of surgical instruments for me, mounted in silver, which you have seen in my room, and which to me is the most precious thing I own. Whatever happened to Venard? Is he still living? No. A few weeks after I became a surgeon, he fell ill, poor man. I passed my nights by his bedside. Yes, be Jean, to snatch that man from death, I tried everything I knew. I wanted him to live long enough so I could show him what his sacrifice and generosity had accomplished, that in his own way he'd helped cure the sick. I wanted to be able to give expression to the only need for gratitude that ever filled my heart, to quench the fire that burns in me to this day. Venard, my second father, died in my arms. I have sometimes thought that he died because his mission in life had been fulfilled. I'm so sorry, my friend. You have my sympathy. I know how terrible I felt when my own father died. This man's faith was perfect. He loved the Holy Virgin as if he might have loved his own wife. He was an ardent Catholic, but he never said a word to me about my lack of religion. Often, in the night, he would tell me about his fears and to his future fate. He feared his life had not been saintly enough. He, not saintly enough. He worked from morning till night for me, for my medical work, for the cures of the sick people that he would never see. For whom then is paradise, if there be paradise? He received the last sacraments, like the saint he was, and his death was worthy of his life. I alone followed him to the grave. You alone? There was no one else? No. 
When I had laid my great benefactor and friend to rest, I looked for someone to whom I could repay my debt to him. There was no one. He had neither friend nor family. How very sad for both of you. Yes, sad. But he believed, you see. He had religious convictions. Had I any right to dispute it? He had spoken timidly of masses said for the repose of the dead. So as soon as I had money enough, I gave to the church of San Sulpice the recommended offering for four masses every year. It is the only thing I can do for Venard, to thus satisfy his pious wishes and to pay my debt to him. I understand now. It all makes sense. On the days when the Mass is said, at the beginning of each season of the year, I go for his sake and say the required prayers. I say with the good faith of a skeptic, Great God, if you exist, and if there is a sphere which you have appointed after death for those who have had great faith and great charity, remember my good Venhard, and if he should have anything to suffer, let me suffer it for him, and he may enter all the sooner into what is called paradise. That, my dear Bashan, is as much a man who holds my opinions can allow himself. Anything further is dangerous for an atheist. I swear to you, Bashan, I would give my fortune all I have if faith such as Vernard's could come to me.